Chapter Sixteen of the First Violin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Violin by Jessie Fothergill. Chapter Sixteen. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not. Rather, find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which, having been, must ever be in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death, in years that bring the philosophic mind, Wordsworth. From that October afternoon, I was a man saved from myself. Courvoisier had said, in answer to my earnest entreaties about joining housekeeping, We will try. You may not like it, and if so, remember you are at liberty to withdraw when you will. The answer contented me, because I knew that I should not try to withdraw. Our friendship progressed by such quiet, imperceptible degrees, each one knotting the past more closely and inextricably with the present, that I could by no means relate them if I wished it. But I do not wish it. I only know and am content with it, that it has fallen to my lot to be blessed with that most precious of all earthly possessions, the friend that sticketh closer than a brother our union has grown and remained not merely first and troy but immovable unshakable there was first the child he was two years old a strange weird silent child very beautiful as the son of his father could scarcely fail to be but with a different kind of beauty how still he was and how patient not a fretful child not given to crying or complaint fond of resting in one place with solemn thoughtful eyes fixed when his father was there upon him when his father was not there upon the strip of sky which could be seen through the windows above the housetops the child's name was sigmund he displayed a friendly disposition toward me indeed he was passively friendly and if one may say such a thing of a baby courteous to all he came in contact with he had inherited his father's polished manner one saw that when he grew up he would be a gentleman in the finest outer sense of the word his inner life he kept concealed from us i believe he had some method of communicating his ideas to eugen even if he never spoke eugen never could conceal his own mood from the child it knew let him feign otherwise never so cunningly exactly what he felt glad or sad or between the two and no acting could deceive him it was a strange intensely interesting study to me one to which i daily returned with fresh avidity he would let me take him in my arms and talk to him would sometimes after looking at me long and earnestly break into a smile a strange grave sweet smile then i could do no otherwise but set him hastily down and look away for so unearthly a smile i had never seen he was though fragile not an unhealthy child though so delicately formed and intensely sensitive to nervous shocks had nothing of the coward in him as was proved to us in a thousand ways shivered through and through his little frame at the sight of a certain picture to which he had taken a great antipathy a picture which hung in the public gallery at the Tunhalle. He hated it. 
because of a certain evil-looking man portrayed in it but when his father taking his hand said to him go sigmund and look at that man i wish thee to look at him went without turn or waver and gazed long and earnestly at the low-type bestial visage portrayed to him eugen had trodden noiselessly behind him and he watched how his two little fists clenched themselves at his sides while his gaze never wavered never wandered till at last eugen with a strange expression caught him in his arms and half killed him with kisses my liebling he murmured as if utterly satisfied with him courvoisier himself there were a great many strong and positive qualities about this man which in themselves would have set him somewhat apart from other men thus he had crotchety ideas about truth and honour such as one might expect from so knightly-looking a personage it was karl linders who at a later period of our acquaintance amused himself by chalking up prince eugen der edelrifte beneath his name his musical talent or rather genius it was more than talent was at that time not one-fifth part known to me yet even what i saw excited my wonder but these and a long list of other active characteristics all faded into insignificance before the towering passion of his existence his love for his child it was strange it was touching to see the bond between father and son the child's thoughts and words as told in his eyes and from his lips formed the man's philosophy i believe eugen confided everything to his boy his first thought in the morning his last at night was for dear kleiner his leisure was i cannot say given up to the boy but it was always passed with him Courvoisier soon gained the reputation among our comrades for being a sham and a delusion. They said that to look at him, one would suppose that no more genial, jovial fellow could exist. There was kindliness in his glance, bon camaraderie in his voice, a genial, open, human, sympathetic kind of influence in his nature and in all he did. And yet, said Karl Linders to me with gesticulation, one never can get him to go anywhere one may invite him one may try to be friends with him but no off he goes home what does the fellow want at home he behaves like a young miss of fifteen whose governess won't let him mix with vulgar companions i laughed despite myself at this tirade of karl so that was how eugen's behavior struck outsiders and you are every bit as bad as he is and as soft he has made you so went on karl linders vehemently it isn't right you two ought to be leaders outside as well as in but you walk yourselves away and stay at home at home indeed let green goslings and grandfathers stay at home indeed herr linders was not a person who troubled home much spending his time between morning and night between the theatre and concert-room restaurant and verein what do you do at home he asked irately that's our concern mein lieber said i composedly thinking of young sigmund whose existence was unknown except to our two selves and laughing are you composing a symphony or an opera buffa you might tell a fellow 
I laughed again, and said we led a peaceable life as honest citizens should, and added, laying my hand upon his shoulder, for I had more of a leaning toward Karl, scamp though he was, than to any of the others. You might do worse than follow our example, old fellow. Bah! said he, with unutterable contempt. I'm a man, not a milksop. Besides, how do I know what your example is? You say you behave yourselves, but how am I to know it? I'll drop upon you unawares and catch you sometime. See if I don't. The next evening, by a rare chance with us, was a free one. There was no opera and no concert. We had had probe that morning and were at liberty to follow the devices and desires of our own hearts that evening. These devices and desires led us straight home, followed by a sneering laugh from Herr Linders, which vastly amused me. The year was drawing to a close. Christmas was nigh. The weather was cold and unfriendly. Our stove was lighted, our lamp burning pleasantly on the table. Our big room looked homely and charming by these evening lights. Master Sigmund was wide awake in honor of the occasion, and sat upon my knee while his father played the fiddle. I have not spoken of his playing before. It was in its way unique. It was not a violin that he played. It was a spirit that he invoked, and a strange answer it sometimes gave forth to his summons. Tonight he had taken it up suddenly and sat playing, without book, a strange melody which wrung my heart, full of minor cadences, with an infinite wail and weariness in it. I closed my eyes and listened. It was sad, but it was absorbing. When I opened my eyes again and looked down, I found that tears were running from Sigmund's eyes. He was sobbing quietly, his head against my breast. "'I say, Eugen, look here,' is he crying. "'Poor little chap. He'll have a good deal to go through before he has learnt all his lessons,' said Eugen, laying down his violin. "'What was that? I never heard it before.' "'I have often,' said he, resting his chin upon his hand, "'in the sound of streams, in the rush of a crowd, upon a mountain, "'yes, even alone with a woman, I—' "'He broke off abruptly. "'But never on a violin before?' said I significantly. "'No, never.' "'Why don't you print some of those impromptus you are always making?' I asked. "'He shrugged his shoulders.' Ere I could pursue the question, someone knocked at the door, and, in answer to our herein, appeared a handsome, laughing face, and a head of wavy hair, which, with a tall, shapely figure, I recognized as those of Karl Linders. "'I told you fellows I'd hunt you up, and I always keep my word,' said he composedly. "'You can't very well turn me out for calling upon you.' He advanced. Courvoisier rose, and, with a courteous cordiality, offered his hand, and drew a chair up. Karl came forward, looking round, smiling and chuckling at the success of his experiment, and, as he came opposite to me, his eyes fell upon those of the child, who had raised his head and was staring gravely at him. Never shall I forget the start, the look of amaze, almost of fear, which shot across the face of Herr Linders.
Amazement would be a weak word in which to describe it. He stopped, stood stock still in the middle of the room. His jaw fell. He gazed from one to the other of us in feeble astonishment, then said in a whisper, Donovan, a child. Don't use bad language before the little innocent, said I, enjoying his confusion. Which of you does it belong to? Is it he or she? He inquired in an awestruck and alarmed manner. His name is Sigmund Corvoisier, said I with difficulty, preserving my gravity. Oh, indeed, I, I wasn't aware, began Karl, looking at Eugen in such a peculiar manner, half respectful, half timid, half ashamed, that I could no longer contain my feelings, but burst into such a shout of laughter as I had not enjoyed for years. After a moment, Eugen joined in. We laughed, peal after peal of laughter, while poor Karl stood feebly, looking from one to the other of the company, speechless, crestfallen. I beg your pardon, he said at last. I won't intrude any longer. Good. He was making for the door, but Eugen made a dash after him, turned him round, and pushed him into a chair. Sit down, man, said he, stifling his laugh. Sit down, man. Do you think the poor little chap will hurt you? Karl cast a distrustful glance sideways at my nursling and spoke not. I'm glad to see you, pursued Eugen. Why didn't you come before? At that, Karl's lips began to twitch with a humorous smile. Presently, he too began to laugh and seemed not to know how or when to stop. It beats all I ever saw or heard or dreamed of, said he at last. That's what brought you home in such a hurry every night. Let me congratulate you, Friedel. You make a first-rate nurse. When everything else fails, I will give you a child as kindermädchen, clean, sober, industrious, and not given to running after young men. With which he roared again, and Sigmund surveyed him with a somewhat severe, though scarcely a disapproving expression. Karl seated himself near him, and though not yet venturing to address him, cast various glances of blandishment and persuasion upon him. Half an hour passed thus, and a second knock was followed by the entrance of Frau Schmidt. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' she remarked, in a tone which said unutterable things. Scorn, contempt, pity, all finely blended into one withering sneer as she cast her eyes around, and a slight but awful smile played about her lips. Half past eight, and that blessed baby not in bed yet? I knew how it would be. And you all smoking too, natürlich. You ought to know better, Herr Kofoisier. You ought, at any rate, she added, scorn dropping into heart-piercing reproach. Give him to me, she added, taking him from me, and apostrophizing him. You poor blessed lamb! Well for you that I am here to look after you, that have had children of my own, and know a little about the sort of way that you ought to be brought up in. Evident signs of uneasiness on Karl's part, as Frau Schmidt, with the same extraordinary contortion of the mouth, half smile, half sneer brought sigmund to his father to say good night 
that process over he was brought to me and then as if it were a matter which understood itself to karl eugen and i like family men as we were had gone through the ceremony with willing grace karl backed his chair a little looked much alarmed shot a queer glance at us at the child and then appealingly up into the woman's face we through our smoke watched him he looks so very very he began come come mein herr what does that mean kiss the little angel and be thankful that you may the innocent you ought to be delighted said she standing with grenadier-like stiffness beside him he won't bite you karl i said reassuringly he is quite harmless thus encouraged herr linde stepped forward and touched the cheek of the child with his lips then as if surprised stroked it with his finger liebe himmel how soft like satin or rose leaves he murmured as the woman carried the child away shut the door and disappeared does she tackle you in that way every night he inquired next every evening said eugen and i little dared to open my lips before her you would notice how quiet i kept it's because i am afraid of her frau schmidt who had at first objected so strongly to the advent of the child was now devoted to it and would have resented exceedingly the idea of allowing any one but herself to put it to bed dress or undress it or look after it in general this state of things had crept on very gradually she had never said how fond she was of the child but put her kindness upon the ground that as a christian woman she could not stand by and see it mishandled by a couple of men and oh the unutterable contempt upon the word men under this disguise she attempted to cover the fact that she delighted to have it with her to kiss it fondle it admire it and do for it we knew now that no sooner had we left the house than the child would be brought down and would never leave the care of frau schmidt until our return or until he was in bed and asleep she said he was a quiet child and did not give so much trouble indeed the little child won a friend in whoever saw him he had made another conquest to-night karl linders after puffing away for some time inquired with an affectation of indifference how old is he der kleine engel two a little more handsome little fellow glad you think so show sure it but i didn't know courvoisier so sure as i live i knew nothing about it i dare say not did i ever say you did i saw that karl wished to ask another question one which had trembled upon my own lips many a time but which i had never asked which i knew that i never should ask the mother of that child is she alive or dead why may we never hear one word of her why this silence as of the grave was she your wife did you love her did she love you questions which could not fail to come to me and about which my thoughts would hang for hours i could imagine a woman being very deeply in love with courvoisier whether he would love very deeply himself whether love would form a mainspring of his life and actions or whether it took only a secondary place i speak of the love of woman 
I could not guess. I could decide upon many points of his character. He was a good friend, a high-minded and a pure-minded man. His everyday life, the turn of his thoughts and conversation, showed me that, as plainly as any great adventure could have done, that he was an ardent musician, an artist in the truest and deepest sense of a quixotically generous and unselfish nature. All this I had already proved. That he loved his child with a love not short of passion was patent to me every day but upon the past silence so utter as i never before met with not a hint not an illusion not one syllable little sigmund was not yet two and a half the story upon which his father maintained so deep a silence was not could not be a very old one his behavior gave me no clue as to whether it had been a joyful or a sorrowful one mere silence could tell me nothing some men are silent about their griefs some about their joys i knew not in which direction his disposition lay i saw karl look at him that evening once or twice and i trembled lest the blundering good-natured fellow should make the mistake of asking some question but he did not i need not have feared People were not in the habit of putting obtrusive questions to Eugen Courvoisier. The danger was somehow quietly tidied over, the delicate ground avoided. The conversation wandered quietly off to commonplace topics, the state of the orchestra, tales of its doings, the tempers of our different conductors, Malperg of the opera, Wolf of the ordinary concerts, which took place two or three times a week, when we fiddled and the public ate, drank, and listened. Lastly, von Francius Königlicher, music director. Karl Linders gave his opinion freely upon the men in authority. He had nothing to do with them, nothing to hope or fear from them. He filled a quiet place among the violoncellists, and had attained his twenty-eighth year without displaying any violent talent, or tendency to distinguish himself otherwise than by getting as much mirth out of life as possible and living in the perpetual state of carlise contenta he desired to know what courvoisier thought of von francius for curiosity the fault of those idle persons who afterwards develop into busybodies was already beginning to leave its traces on herr lindis it was less known than guessed that the state of things between Courvoisier and von Francius, was less peace than armed neutrality. The intense politeness of von Francius to his first violinist, and the punctilious ceremoniousness of the latter towards his chief, were topics of speculation and amusement to the whole orchestra. "'I think von Francius would be a fiend if he could,' said Karl comfortably. "'I wouldn't stand it if he spoke to me as he speaks to some people.' oh they like it said courvoisier and karl stared girls don't object to a little bullying anything rather than be left alone courvoisier went on tranquilly girls ejaculated karl you mean the young ladies of the chorus don't you said courvoisier unmovedly he does bully them i don't deny but they come back again oh i see said karl accepting the rebuff he had not referred to the young ladies of the chorus. "'Have you heard von Francius play?' he began next. "'Naturally.' 
What do you think of it? I think it is superb, said Courvoisier. Baffled again, Karl was silent. The power and the daring of it are grand, went on Eugen heartily. I could listen to him for hours, to see him seat himself before the piano as if he were sitting down to read a newspaper, and do what he does without moving a muscle is simply superb. There's no other word. Other men may play the piano. He takes the keyboard and plays with it, and it says what he likes. I looked at him and was satisfied. He found the same want in von Franz's superb manipulation that I did. The glitter of a diamond, not the glow of a fire. Karl had not the subtlety to retort. Aye, but does it say what we like? He subsided again, merely giving a meek assent to the proposition, and saying suggestively, He's not liked, though he is such a popular fellow. The public is often a great fool. Well, but you can't expect it to kiss the hand that slaps it in the face as von Francius does, said Karl, driven to metaphor probably for the first time in his life, and seeming astonished at having discovered a hitherto unknown mental property pertaining to himself. Courvoisier laughed. I'm certain of one thing. Von Francius will go on slapping the public's face. I won't say how it will end, but it would not surprise me in the least to see the public at his feet, as it is now at those of... Mm, said Karl reflectively. He did not stay much longer, but having finished his cigar, rose. He seemed to feel very apologetic, and out of the fullness of his heart his mouth spake. I really wouldn't have intruded if I had known. Known what? inquired Eugen with well-assumed surprise. I thought you were just by yourselves, you know, and so we are. But we can do with other society. Friedel here gets very tedious sometimes. In fact, langweilig. Come again, nicht wahr? If I shan't be in your way, said Karl, looking round the room with somewhat wistful eyes. We assured him to the contrary, and he promised, with unnecessary emphasis, to come again. He will return. I know he will, said Eugen, after he had gone. The next time that Herr Linders arrived, which was ere many days had passed, he looked excited and important, and after the first greetings were over, he undid a great number of papers, which wrapped and enfolded a parcel of considerable dimensions and displayed to our enraptured view of a white woolly animal of stupendous dimensions fastened upon a green stand which stand when pressed caused the creature to give forth a howl like unto no lowing of oxen nor bleating of sheep ever heard on earth this inviting-looking creature he held forth towards sigmund who stared at it perhaps he's got one already said Karl, seeing that the child did not display any violent enthusiasm about the treasure. Oh, no, said Eugen promptly. Perhaps he does not know what it is, I suggested, rather unkindly, scarcely able to keep my countenance at the idea of that baby playing with such a toy. Perhaps not, said Karl more cheerfully, kneeling down by my side. Sigmund sat on my knee and squeezing the stand so that the woolly animal howled see here sigmund look at the pretty lamb 
Oh, come, Karl. Are you a lamb? Call it an eagle at once, said I skeptically. It is a lamb, ain't it? said he, turning it over. They called it a lamb at the shop. A very queer lamb, not a German breed, anyhow. Now I think of it, my little sister has one, but she calls it a rabbit, I believe. Very likely you could call that anything, and no one could contradict you. Well, the Kleiner doesn't know the difference. It's a toy, said Karl desperately. Not a toy that seems to take his fancy much, said I, as Sigmund, with evident signs of displeasure, turned away from the animal on the green stand and refused to look at it. Karl looked despondent. He doesn't like the look of it, said he plaintively. I thought I was sure to be right in this. My little sister... Karl's little sister had certainly never been so often quoted by her brother before. Please for hours with that thing she calls a rabbit. Eugen had come to the rescue and grasped the woolly animal, which Karl had contemptuously thrown aside. After convincing himself by near examination as to which was intended for head and which for tail, he presented it to his son, remarking that it was a pretty toy. I'll pray for you after that, Eugen, often and earnestly said I. Sigmund looked appealingly at him, but seeing that his father appeared able to endure the presence of the beast, and seemed to wish him to do the same, from some dark and inscrutable reason not to be grasped by so young a mind, for he was modest as to his own intelligence, he put out his small arm, received the creature into it, and embracing it round the body, held it to his side, and looked at Eugen with a pathetic expression. "'Pretty plaything, nicht wahr?' said Eugen encouragingly. Sigmund nodded silently. The animal emitted a howl. The child winced, but looked resigned. Eugen rose and stood at some little distance, looking on. Sigmund continued to embrace the animal with the same resigned expression, until Karl, stooping, took it away. "'You mustn't make him just because I brought it.' said he. Better luck next time. I see he's not a common child. I must try to think of something else. We commanded our countenances with difficulty, but preserved them. Sigmund's feelings had been severely wounded. For many days he eyed Karl with a strange, cold glance, which the latter used every art in his power to change, and at last succeeded. Woolly lambs became a forbidden subject. Nothing annoyed Karl more than for us to suggest, if Sigmund happened to be a little cross or mournful, suppose you just go home, Karl, and fetch the lamb, rabbit, lion. I am sure he would like it. From that time, the child had another worshipper, and we a constant visitor in Karl Linders. We sat together one evening, Eugen and I, after Sigmund had been in bed a long time, after the opera was over, chatting, as we often did, or as often remained silent. He had been reading, and the book from which he read was a volume of English poetry. At last, laying the book aside, he said, The first night we met, you fainted away from exhaustion and long fasting. You said you would tell me why you had allowed yourself to do so, but you have never kept your word. I didn't care to eat. People eat to live, except those who live to eat. And I was not very anxious to live. I didn't care for my life. In fact, I wished I was dead. Why? 
an unlucky love i bravara i never knew what it was to be in love in my life said i with perfect truth is that true friedel he asked apparently surprised as true as possible i think a timely love affair however unlucky would have roused me and brought me to my senses again general melancholy oh i was alone in the world i had been reading 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 my brain was one dark misty muddle of kant schopenhauer von hartmann and a few others i read them one after another as quickly as possible the mixture had the same effect upon my mind as the indiscriminate contents of taffy shop would have upon sigmund's stomach it made it sick in my crude ungainly unfinished fashion i turned over my information laying down big generalizations upon a foundation of experience of the smallest possible dimensions and all upon one side he nodded ay i know it and after considering the state of the human race that is to say the half dozen people i knew and the miseries of the human lot as set forth in the books i had read and having proved to myself all up in that little room you know i pointed to my bedroom that there neither was nor could be heaven or hell or any future state and having decided also from that room that there was no place for me in the world and that i was very likely actually filling the place of some other man poorer than i was and able to think life a good thing eugen was smiling to himself in great amusement i came to the conclusion that the best thing i could do was to leave the world were you going to starve yourself to death that is a rather tedious process nicht wahr oh no i had not decided upon any means of effacing myself and it was really your arrival which brought on that fainting fit for if you hadn't turned up when you did i probably should have thought of my interior some time before seven o'clock but you came eugen i wonder what sent you up to my room just at that very time on that very day von francius said eugen tranquilly i had seen him and he was very busy and referred me to you that's all well let us call it von francius but what's the end of it is that the whole story i thought i might as well help you a bit said i rather awkwardly you were not like other people you see it was the child i think i was as much amazed as karl if i didn't show it so much and after that after that well there was the child you see and, and things seemed quite different somehow i've been very comfortable this was my way of putting it ever since and i'm curious to see what the boy will be like in a few years shall you make him into a musician too courvoisier's brow clouded a little i don't know was all he said later i learned the reason for that don't know so it was no love affair said eugen again then i have been wrong all the time i quite fancied it was some girl what could make you think that i asked with a whole-hearted laugh i tell you i don't know what it is to be in love the other fellows are always in love they are in a constant state of schwemmery about some girl or other it goes in epidemics they have not each a separate passion 
the whole lot of them will go mad about one young woman i can't understand it i wish i could they seem to enjoy it so much you heathen said he but not in a very bantering tone why eugen do you mean to say that you are so very susceptible oh i beg your pardon i added hastily shocked and confused to find that i had been so nearly overstepping the boundary which i had always marked out for myself and i stopped abruptly that's so like you friedel said he in a tone which was in some way different from his usual one i never knew such a ridiculous chivalrous punctilious fellow as you are tell me something did you never speculate about me never impertinently i assure you again said i earnestly he laughed you impertinent that is amusing i must say but surely you have given me a thought now and then have wondered whether i had a history or sprung out of nothing certainly and wondered what your story was but i do not need to know it to i understand well but it is so rather difficult to say this to such an unsympathetic person you won't understand it i have been in love friedel so i can suppose i waited for the corollary and been loved in return but it did not come he said and received as much regard in return as i deserved perhaps more as i could not cordially assent to this proposition i remained silent after a pause he went on i am eight-and-twenty and have lived my life the story won't bear raking up now perhaps never for a long time i went on my own way and was satisfied with it blindly inanely densely satisfied with it then all at once i was brought to reason he laughed not a very pleasant laugh brought to reason he resumed but how by waking one morning to find myself a spoilt man and spoilt by myself too a pause while i turned this information over in my mind then said composedly i don't quite believe in your being a spoiled man granted that you have made some fiasco even a very bad one what is to prevent your making a life again ha <laughs> ha said he ungenially things not dreamed up friedel by your straightforward philosophy one night i was take it all in all straight with the world and my destiny the next night i was an outcast and justly so i don't complain i have no right to complain again he laughed i once knew someone said i who used to say that many a good man and many a great man was lost to the world simply because nothing interrupted the course of his prosperity don't suppose that i am an embryo hero of any description said he bitterly i am merely as i said a spoiled man brought to his senses and with life before him to go through as best he may and the knowledge that his own fault has brought him to what he is but look here if it is merely a question of name or money i began it is not merely that but suppose it were what then it lies with yourself you may make a name either as a composer or performer your head or your fingers will secure you fame and money none the less should i be as i said a spoiled man 
said he quietly. I should be ashamed to come forward. It was I myself who sent myself and my prospects kaput. And for that sort of obscurity is the best taste and the right sphere. But there's the boy, I suggested. Let him have the advantage. Don't, he said suddenly, and wincing visibly, as if I had touched a raw spot. No, my one hope for him is that he may never be known as my son. But, but, poor little beggar, I wonder what will become of him, he uttered after a pause, during which I did not speak again. Eugen puffed fitfully at his cigar, and at last, knocking the ash from it and avoiding my eyes, he said in a low voice, I suppose sometime I must leave the boy. Leave him? I echoed intelligently. When he grows a little older, before he is old enough to feel it very much, though I must part from him. It will be better. Another pause. No sign of emotion, no quivering of the lips, no groan, though the heart might be a faint. I sat speechless. I have not come to the conclusion lately. I have always known it, he went on, and spoke slowly. I have known it, and have thought about it so as to get accustomed to it, see? I nodded. At that time, as you seem to have a fancy for the child, will you give an eye to him sometimes, Friedel? That is, if you care enough for him. For a moment, I did not speak. Then I said, you are quite sure the parting must take place? He assented. When it does, will you give him to me, to my charge, altogether? What do you mean? If he must lose one father, let me grow as like another to him as I can. Friedhelm, on no other condition, said I. I will not have an eye to him occasionally. I will not let him go out alone among strangers and, and give a look in upon him now and then. Eugen had covered his face with his hands, but spoke not. I will have him with me altogether or not at all, I finished with a kind of jerk. Impossible, said he, looking up with a pale face and eyes full of anguish, the more intense, and that he uttered not a word of it. Impossible. You are no relation. He has not a claim. There is not a reason, not the wildest reason for such a yes there is there is reason that i won't have it otherwise said i doggedly it is fantastic like your insane self he said with a forced smile which cut me somehow more than if he had groaned fantastic i don't know what you mean what good would it be to me to see him with strangers it should only make myself miserable with wishing to have him I don't know what you mean by fantastic. He drew a long breath. So be it then, he said at last. And he need know nothing about his father. I may even see him from time to time without his knowing. See him growing into a man like you, Friedel. It would be worse the separation, even if one had to make a merit of necessity. Yes, well worth it. Like me, neither mein Liebe he shall be something rather better than I am. Let us hope, 
said I. But there is time enough to talk about it. Oh, yes. In a year or two from now, he said almost inaudibly. The worst of it is that in a case like this, the years go so fast, so cursedly fast. I could make no answer to this, and he added, Give me thy hand upon it, Friedel. I held out my hand. We had arisen and stood looking steadfastly into each other's eyes. I wish I were what I might have been to pay for this, he said hesitatingly, wringing my hand and laying his left for a moment on my shoulder. Then, without another word, went into his room, shutting the door after him. I remained still, sadder, gladder than I had ever been before. Never had I so intensely felt the deep, eternal sorrow of life. That sorrow which can be avoided by one who rightly live, yet never had life towered before me, so rich and so well worth living out, so capable of high exultation, pure purpose, full satisfaction and sufficient reward. My quarrel with existence was made up. End of chapter 16